Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those who might be joining us for the first time, we are speaking with musicians and performers whose parents made it big in the entertainment industry, as well as those artists who started performing when they were very young. Today we will be speaking to an actor, a comedian, writer-director, narrator, singer, and dancer who became a star of the English Music Hall stage when he was just a teenager. He later became the first pop star signed by the legendary music producer George Martin, once referred to by Paul McCartney as the Fifth Beatle. And he went on to become both a classical actor and a Broadway star. Uh, we'll meet him in a moment, but first I'm Charles Isherwood. We are bringing this to you from our podcast studios in Midtown Manhattan, just steps away from the heart of Broadway here in New York City, where I'm joined by my producer, Brad Newman. Hi, Brad. Hi, how are you, Charles? Good, how are you? This is, this is an exciting day today because, um, and I, I didn't share this with our guest on the way up here, um, but as you know, and I've said this before, I grew up in the Midwest um, in Ohio, about 500 miles from this wonderful city. Um, but when I was 10 years old, my mother brought me here as, uh, as sort of a gift, as, a, as an introduction to the theater. And we saw two musicals while I was here. We went to see Annie first, and the very, very next night we saw Barnum. And uh, it's amazing because our guest obviously played the title character in that musical. And I think sometimes actors, of course they play to, to the audience, but they don't necessarily, and, and maybe their brains couldn't even hold this in their heads, understand the sort of impact that, that one performance can have on one member of the audience. And at 10, I tell you, it was something else. So I am definitely looking forward to today. Well, Brad, you're here to help me along and make sure we stay on the right track. And uh, Rick Buser is our engineer today. Um, as some have guessed, probably, uh, today's episode is part of our Broadway sessions. And our guest, if you haven't figured it out yet, is a man whose career spans more than six decades and many different realms of entertainment. His unusual journey through show business has taken him to the brightest venues on both sides of the Atlantic. He's been nominated for five Tony Awards, and he won one for his turn in Barnum, uh, the performance Brad just referred to. Um, he's been nominated for an Oscar, won two Grammy Awards, two Drama Desk Awards, two Outer Critics Circle Awards. I'm running out of breath here. And about everything else in between. He's also uh, the beloved voice of the Harry Potter novels on audiobook. Um, <laughs> with that lively introduction, we would like to welcome Jim Dale to the podcast. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, absolutely. So let's begin at the beginning where, where it all began. Uh, you were a child growing up in, you know, not in London, not in central England, you know, where the show business was centered. Um, what were you like as a kid? Were you the guy who was running around energetic, needed to be expending energy? No, absolutely. I, w I was the clown. Mm -hmm. always, always a clown and wanted to make everybody laugh, obviously. And um, my great treat in those days was to be able to be taken to the music hall 
to see uh, the various comics, to see the various artists who performed in those days. And I was blown away by the comedians and uh, the way they talked to the audience and the way they made them laugh. And uh, I remember my dad taking me to see Me and My Girl, which was in London at the time. And this comic walked on the stage. He did a silly walk down to the footlights, tripped over the footlights and disappeared into the orchestra pit. And it was then I heard 1,200 people give a sound that I'd never heard in my life, not from a small town. And that was the sound of 1,200 people screaming with laughter. And the effect was magical on me. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. And I said, Dad, that's what I want to do, please. And Dad gave me the best bit of advice. He said, well, learn how to move. And uh, he was right, because that's the secret of all theater. So that's how it started off. I I went to dancing school when I was about seven, eight, nine. Um, I did it for six years. I I was the only boy in an all-girls dancing school. And what kind of dance did you learn? Was it classical ballet? or I did tap. I did ballroom. I did national dancing. I did tumbling. I did eccentric comedy dancing. and, uh, And, of course, ballet. I did ballet for six years. But as a kid, you know, because sometimes you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You were involved in all these dance classes. Did you did you ever wonder when does the comedy start? Yes. Well, the, there was an old man there who was doing very funny things with his legs. It made his body look as if it was rubber. And his legs were flying all over the place. And I said, can you teach me that? And he said, well, it's called eccentric comedy dancing. I said, where did you get it from? He said, my grandfather taught me. I said, oh, one. And who taught your grandfather? He said, well, his grandfather. Hmm. I said, wait, wait, wait. This takes us back to 1780, 1790. He said, yes, they were street performers long before theater. So these were steps that he taught me that I now use in my one-man show that go back 200 years. What a gift. What, what a, a gift. gift. Yeah. To, to, and, and, and fortunate to find him yeah. at well, that B, age. B.B. Newworth watched it, watched me doing it in the Threepenny Opera once, and she said, if you die before you put all this down on video, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it's on video now, or, or B.B.'s going to be <laughs> after you. We've captured some of it, yes. So was that your entree to the to the musical, to performing? Um, was it physical comedy or dance or a combination of both? Well, I went along to do um, I, I went along to do an audition for a touring show that was uh, in England at the time called Carol Levis Presents Britain's Top Teenage Talent, and uh, with all that training as a dancer, I decided to audition as an impressionist, and I'd never done an impression in my life. (laughs) But I took along three impressions that I thought were very good, and uh, I was standing at the side of the stage, and they announced my name, and I walked on, and I tripped over the curtain, and I fell flat on my face, and it hurt. Mm. And he got a big laugh from the boss man who was standing out front, who was shouting out every 30 seconds, thank you, (laughs) next, please. So... I stood up and I dusted myself down and I limped to the stage, center stage, got another laugh, and then I did my three impressions. Absolute silence. So I thought, well, I'll take the mickey out of the boss man in the audience. So I shouted out, thank you, next, please. And this time he didn't say, thank you, next, please. He said, young man, wait in the wings. Mm. And, and I thought, oh, God, he's going to charge me for the curtain. But he didn't. He 
he said, you know, that fall you did when you came on, that was very funny. I said, thank you, yes, I've, I've been practicing. He said, well, go home, practice some more, and put together a, a five-minute act where you fall over, and if you've got one, come back tonight, and I'll put you on sight unseen. And that was the what happened. I had an entrance by th two men throwing me on stage. They swung me up and down and then threw me on stage, and the audience gasped as this 17-and-a-half-year-old body came helicoptering through the air five feet off the ground and crashed dead center stage in absolute silence. Wow. And then I heard it, the whole audience suddenly screaming with the laughter, and uh, I knew that I'd finally landed in show business. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. It's amazing that you didn't suffer effects from that for the rest of your life. You oh. know, some of the people with the pratfalls they have, it's, oh, no, it's I, Chevy Chase. I, I studied tumbling for six years. So that helped. You know, if there was a flight of stairs on the set or in the theater, I would use it as an entrance, two and a half flying forward somersaults. Sometimes I'd get up and I'd say to the audience, what do you want, blood? And I'd feel the blood <laughs> coming down from a, a broken elbow or something. Wow. The music hall tradition is not as well known in America. So uh, if you could just describe what an average evening at the music hall would be like when you were... Well, first of all, it was for a family. It was for family. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the, when you arrived at the theater, the owner would come backstage and say, I wish you a lovely week, but don't forget, this is a family audience, so d no dirty jokes. If you do a dirty joke, I'll drop the curtain on you, and you won't work in this theater or any other theater in this area ever again. Have a good, have a good week. And this taught us all to get laughs from clean jokes from mm -hmm. clean business shtick no swearing nothing like that and that's still the tradition of british musical to make everybody in that audience laugh from kids to grandmother and so i was brought up in a, with a very clean tradition of and so i decided to do visual comedy due to the dancing experience that i'd had and so uh, i did a lot of comedy dancing on stage in the in that one man in the uh, in those early days with carol levis uh, but it really did teach me, you know, that uh, one can go out there and hopefully make people laugh, except in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> a, a British comic. Tough crowd can, there. Oh, God, no. I walked on this. Just as I was about to go on stage in Glasgow one Friday night, the stage manager said to me, do you have any next of kin? And I thought, oh, God, that's some sort. And as I walked on, I heard... And I didn't know what it was. And I looked down, and these were pennies, huge English pennies, uh, that were not bouncing off the floor. They were embedding themselves in the wooden floor. And then I realized that these coins had been taken by these kids into their father's workshop. They had ground these coins very sharp, so that there was just two sharp edges to it and two blank edges where they could hold it. And they were hurling these down at all British comedians. Oh, jeez. And uh, those were the sort of, when you're 17 years of age, that's, that's something that you have to try and deal with. So I just yelled out, I've got one word for you, whoever threw that. And this idiot yelled back from the second balcony, what? And I said, jump. And that got me my only mm. laugh that evening before I ran off. Oh, well, that's a tough you. crowd. Yeah, for hanging in there. But, you know, what's interesting here is what an apprenticeship that you had at 17. I mean, when you talk about these English music halls, from what we've read, you really toured every single one all across the country, every night. That's right. We, we did 14 shows a week. 
Wow. Uh, there was two two shows a night, uh, matinees Wednesday and Saturday, um, and I toured for two and a half to three years during that. Uh, as the question you asked me earlier, and I do forget did forget to follow up. Um, it started off with maybe three or four girls dancing as the curtain went up, and as they finished, the oleo would drop down, which is the cloth behind with pictures on it or advertisements. My act was second spot comic, so I walked out and entertained the audience while behind me they were setting up for the jugglers. Mm. And the, as I finished, the jugglers started, and then perhaps the main comic of the evening would be a, a well-known radio personality, and he'd come on and do his 20 minutes. Then there'd be an intermission, and in the second act, one of the big stars from opera or and even ballet dancers and had a variety show for the rest of the of the show and so once you'd finished your three or four or five or six minute act you just went back to the dressing room and waited till the second house there was nothing else to do there was no uh, curtain call at the end but what it did do it enabled me to um, practice and, and polish comedic routines with the help of other top top English comics who were on the bill watching Mm-hmm. And they were many of those beautiful, talented pros would stand in the wings watching this young 17-year-old kid try and get a laugh. And when I came off, they would be the first to say, if you did this, if you tidied that, if you pulled that back, if you pushed that. If you... So this was wonderful advice that I took full, full uh, What's advantage the of, yeah. Yeah. And, and laughter is a wonderful thing because more than even drama, it, it's, you can really tell when they pop. You can actually play with a gesture. Oh, you I, know? I used to say in the old days that when, when, you, when you're working with the audience, um, playing with them, it's, like, it's almost like having two or three hundred fishing lines out there, all with bait on the end. And you're baiting mm-hmm. them with these funny little lines that you're throwing. And one by one, you get a hook, you get a laugh there, you get another giggle there, there's a titter there. And gradually, so you start reeling these in, and then you don't catch it, you let them out again. Uh, and then you reel them in again and <laughs> let them out again. You've got so a whole wonderful. school of fish occasionally. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's a lovely. A lovely feeling that you're communicating with an audience, but they're with you. They're mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. And yet, you know, here you were established at a very young age um, doing comedy. Uh, and the next turn in your tail is you become a pop star. That was, an was that a natural transition? Was it something you planned or was it? No, I, I warmed the audience up as a comic for the first rock and roll show. On, on BBC television called Six Five Special. And I borrowed a guitar from uh, one of the musicians at the end of my act, and I played a pop song. And the producer said, you know, um, the jokes were terrible, but the song you sang, um, we'll give you a couple of songs you can practice and come back next week. And bef- I said, but I'm a comic. He said, no, you were a comic. You're now a singer. So it was, I- was that gentleman, <laughs> was, was that, I want to play a clip for you. Was that George Martin? as George Martin was watching the show that night and asked me to be his first uh, recording artist. Let's take a listen. Oh, come on. You wicked people. My baby, I need you To hug you and squeeze you I wanna do things for you I need you Be my girl You're 
So what's interesting here is this Be My Girl peaked at number two on the British charts in 1957. Um, is there, it's 60 years later. What's it like to listen to that? It's fun. It's like an antique. You don't kick it. You have to look back and realize that although I think that was terrible now, everybody who recorded songs in those days looks back on them and says that was terrible. It was a style that was out then. Of course, we were all part of it. Everybody's slightly ashamed of what they did in the early days in their career most people are sure but it was fun I mean it, it, I, I quite enjoy that as a for a comic well it shows your range though I mean this idea no seriously I mean let's you know listen I get it I I'm, would be embarrassed if you looked at anything I did 10 years ago but mm. the thing of it is is it what range and you really are selling it. I mean, it does. It sounds great. You got number two. It was 20. I was 22 years old. I had no idea what the pop singing world was like, but they gave me the song. They said, sing it. And that was the result. Later on, George asked me, he said, well, why don't you start earning money for yourself by writing your song? So I started to write for other people. Tony Newley uh, uh, recorded quite a few of mine. Um, Joe Brown recorded one. It was my first hit. It was a Cockney song. I wish I knew the reason why me teeth are in me mouth. Why is it when I face the north, me heels are pointing south? I wish I knew why I get wet when I lay in the bath. I'm just a crazy, crazy mixed up kid. It was terrible. It was <laughs> horrible. It was the worst song I've ever written, and it sold half a million. Wow. <laughs> Well, there, there are songs like that today, actually. <laughs> and then, then you know, along came the, the, the better songs. Right. In fact, uh, the one you're most known for probably in America is uh, the theme song for Georgia Girl. Hey there, Georgia Girl, swinging down the street so fancy free. Nobody you meet could ever see the loneliness there. So what's great about this, too, is that I guess in the movie, and this shows that an actor probably wrote this song, is that the lyrics change, you know, and they change from the beginning. They play it, I guess, in the movie, at the beginning of the movie and at the end. But that flexibility. Good of you to notice that. Yes. They asked, they said, take a stopwatch in the studio and watch the film, because when she dunks her hair, uh, her head in the sink, you know, to wash her hair, we want you to mention it. We want you to mention when she does that, when she mm. does that. And then the same applies to the end of the film, when this is happening, please mention that. So those were two different versions of Georgie Girl. And then Tom Springfield, Dusty Springfield's brother, who wrote the music, I wrote the lyrics, they then said, well, we need now a commercial versions so we took the best from the beginning best from the end and mixed them together and the result of it was uh, the one you've just heard georgie girl which by the way is now a musical written by the seekers and it's uh, opened in australia and doing quite well thank you called georgie girl it's yeah. interesting we'll probably see it in the west end and possibly new york one day you well, never it's know a, it's australian you never know yeah yeah <laughs> um but so here you are established as a pop songwriter, pop performer, um, and yet, once again, your career starts to take another turn. What was the next step? Was it to going into movies or going onto the stage? Frank Dunlop, who is a big director in England, he's a national theater director, he saw me as a stand-up comic and he phoned me one day and he said, I'd like to know if you'd like to play Autolycus in the winter, the Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Dunlop, I, I can't do Shakespeare, I'm a stand-up comic. 
And he swore at me over the phone, really translated him in, who the hell are you to say you can't do Shakespeare? Shakespeare had stand-up comics. They were his musical comics. They spoke to the audience. Everybody spoke to the audience. You go on stage, you say, I'm Jim Dale. Or Tolikas goes on and says, I'm the snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. Costard goes on and introduces himself. Bottom, who says, my name is Bottom or Batome, whichever. Um, they all introduced themselves. So I joined Frank's little... I gave up pop singing. I became a Shakespearean actor. And who should be watching one of the shows but Laurence Olivier, who then asked me to join the real National Theatre, uh, British National Theatre at the Old Vic. Yes. And I, I stayed there for about two and a half years doing, I think it was seven major plays, major roles, which was rather lovely. And were you still specializing exclusively in comedy, or were you trying to branch out of that? Point? Well, uh, Larry saw me as a, as a, he wanted a stand-up comic to play the part of uh, a main character in a play by Peter Nichols called The National Health. Uh, it was made into a film later mm -hmm. on. So once I was there, he then said, well, would you like to play um, Lancelot Gobbo? in The Merchant of Venice, with he was playing Shylock. And then he asked me if I'd like to do Costard in Love's Labour's Lost. He said, uh, I want you to play the part of Costard. He's, he speaks the longest word in Shakespeare, honorific abilitude in etatibus. And I said, wow, what does that mean? He said, I have no idea. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I played Costard, and then I did a two-hander play, an extravagant play, Anthony Hopkins and myself, it was called The Architect and the Emperor of Assyria. And that was probably one of the strangest, weirdest plays that both Tony and I have ever been connected with. But it taught us that we, were never, we could never be frightened of anything on stage again after doing such a, a you, show as that. If you could get through that, you could get it, through absolutely. anything. Absolutely. Larry came backstage after the first night. He, I said, how long was it? He said, nearly four hours. I said, what? He said, it was, you never had a run through and we were doing the first night and it was nearly four hours. Can you cut? And I said, yes, by all means. Tomorrow night, Tony, when I say da-da-da-da-da-da, you say da-da-da-da. And Anthony Hopkins said, no, no. Oh, God, no, you can't do that. I said, yes, we can, we can. And Larry said, how much will that cut? I said, two hours. He said, right, you're on. <laughs> so the next night we cut two hours out. Nobody noticed. It that was one of those got to be the most amazing. Uh, wow. It was. <laughs> it's amazing. The simple cut that was ever done <laughs> in a stage play. You know, Olivier said that, that you were a perfect Shakespearean clown. I mean, such high praise from the, one of the greatest, mm -hmm. arguably, g actors well, of his generation. Larry w always wanted, he loved comics. He loved the comedians. Danny Kaye. Um, was one of his favorite performers. Um, he loved comedy. He couldn't do it himself. You got. To, let's be honest. He, the entertainer is not Lawrence Olivier being funny. Mm -mm. It's being not funny. Yeah. Uh, but he loved his his comedic. And I was often asked to go along and give him a bit of business or shtick in any in a play. Long day's journey into night. He asked me if I'd help him do a backfall off a chair to make it look as if it was an accident. And then he recovered, and they, we practiced under that until I heard a voice from the wings one day say, he's no bloody good at that. Get out. Go back. I said, who's that? They said, it's Joan Plowright. It's <laughs> his wife saying, get out. He's too old to do this. So she threw me out of the theater, and uh, I, he never asked me to help him again. Mm. Well, still, it's amazing that your early training <laughs> would come in handy at such unlikely opportunities. 
And, of course, you came to New York with a, a very famous production, Scapino, that you had adapted from uh, Moliere. Frank Dunlop direct, uh, adapted it, translated it. I, I added the, uh, the music. Um, oh. It was a sexy Neapolitan love song that we, we sang in the show. It was only later when you listened to it, you realized it was an Italian menu put to music. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that rhymed. That's great. Can you give us a little bit of that? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Palo all'americana, scampi fritti in brodo. Pasta bolognese, patty mayonnaise, cappuccino espresso, minestroni, macaroni, ravioli o cravetta, caramella in padella, avocado vinaigrette. And of course, when you're using your hands to describe the shape of a woman, then it does help. Um, yeah. It's only then they think, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> if they start actually doing a little tra- menu translation in their head, they'll figure it out, I suppose. You didn't get Frito Musto in there. but <laughs> <laughs> What was it like to perform in for a new country? I, I, that was your introduction to America and a different audience. <clears throat> well, what, <clears throat> what happened was that... Scapino was on and off at the Young Vic Theatre. It opened the Young Vic Theatre when it was first built. And for the next three or four years, we kept bringing Scapino back for a few weeks and then taking it off, bringing it back. And every time we did that, we, we had different players from the real National Theatre across the road taking over top, top stars who would bring their own comedy into their roles and when they left we held on to that comedy and handed it to the next person so gradually over the months and months the comedy built up and built up and by the time we took it to America we op- we did the first preview and the audience wouldn't stop laughing uh, they started laughing as soon as we went out there and it went up and stayed up there and after that first night preview Frank Dunlop called the company together he said that was terrible <laughs> And we said, but they didn't stop laughing. He said, that's the problem. People have to stop laughing. You can't expect people to laugh for two hours like they did. We're going to have to cut the laughs out. So the next day we had a big rehearsal and we cut many, many, many laughs out so that the audience had pauses then just to sit back and get their breath before being... Uh, creating laughter again and that was a great lesson to be taught to any comedian it's not the laughs you're after it's the rhythm of everything that's flowing up there on the stage and you've got to give people a chance it's like swimming you can't swim forever after two laps you relax take a few breaths then you can start again and that's what happened with Scapino so it was such a success that we didn't think we were going to stay in New York but we were offered the Circle in the Square Theatre for 12 weeks and then the success of that moved to the Ambassador Theatre on Broadway for another year and uh, I'd never experienced anything quite like that capacity audiences for a year and uh, I'd never heard laughter like that. And your question, what about a strange audience, a new American audience? They appreciated the visual comedy, and it was very visual, very visual. I mean, I used to run, over, run all over the stage being chased by two men, and at one point d- during rehearsals, I said to Frank, this, this is getting boring, Frank. What if I run from the back of the stage to the front of the stage and leap off and land on the back of the front row? And the impetus would take me to the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth row. And I could do the rest of the scene standing in the middle of the auditorium on the backs of the seats. And Frank said, well, it's dangerous, but it, we'll practice and we'll rehearse it. And we did it. Um, 
every night. And so that was a challenge. That type of, of visual comedy that is so polished and, and, cre- and rehearsed that nothing can go wrong. Yeah. Except occasionally. Well, yes. <laughs> and these days you'd probably have serious insurance issues to deal with. That's, so. pro- that's true. Yes, unfortunately. Um, but, of course, you're also very well known. Brad saw you in this great role uh, for Barnum. Um, how did that come along? And was that a show that we Psy- shaped around you? or No, it was uh, Cy Coleman had seen Scarpino. And they said, we need, we can't, we don't want somebody who looks like P.T. Barnum because he didn't do anything. He was just a showman. But we need somebody with the spirit of the man. So when he walks a tightrope between his between two boxes. One box has his wife in, the other has the Jenny Lind. He's walking a tightrope between his marriage, you know. So let's have a real tightrope. Let's do things like this. When he, let's use trampolines. Let's, well, anyway, we, we included so much business and shtick that it was um, not the Barnum that people th- could see in, in an old print. It was mm-hmm. a very agile young Barnum, but he was the spirit of the man. Mm. And once again, all these years of physical training uh, helped. absolutely contributed to the shaping of this role. Absolutely, You know, yes. if you had not started at age 17 making pratfalls well, here and there. Eventually, um, when I said walk a tightrope, yes, we had a 10-foot tightrope, sorry, an 8-foot tightrope leading to a balloon in the center of the stage they hoped would drift across the audience. And I said, no, the insurance company will not allow you to do this. So suddenly we were left with a string of, or what it was a wire, a tightrope just leading nowhere. So I said, well, why don't we clamp it down every six feet and stretch it from 38 feet across the stage? And I'll walk, I can find, if I can walk six feet, I'll take a deep breath and walk another six, then another six. Well, this took forever to set up. So eventually I said, get rid of all the supports. Let's just have one 38-foot long uh, tightrope, which we, we all practiced and rehearsed. And I used to walk the tightrope, sing in a song at the same time with no umbrella or anything. Now, it sounds as if it was terribly clever, but I promise you, once we set that tightrope up at, pre- at the rehearsals before the show every night, once I'd practiced on it, then people started getting on it. Glenn Close could walk 38 feet on a tightrope. I've seen her do it. Stagehands with their clumpy boots would mm-hmm. climb up and walk the tightrope. It's not difficult to walk off the tightrope if providing you know how to fall off, and that's the first thing you're taught. Yeah. Mm. Yes, that's <laughs> the right <laughs> way to fall is always yeah. <laughs> is always a good lesson. And then, of course, your career in a strange way came full circle uh, when you took over the role in Me and My Girl, which is that show that you had seen That's right. so many, many years before. How did that feel? I mean, I saw it in London with uh, with Robert Lindsay Robert. playing about, and I asked, I said, "Are you taking it to America, Bob?" And he said, "No, I don't want to go to America." I said, "Great, I'll do it." Then he changed his mind, <laughs> came to America. I said, "I'll wait, I'll wait a year because it's 40 years ago that this show brought me into where I am now, and so I need to do it. I, I want to do it desperately." So I took over from Bob one Christmas when he went back to London to. Uh, just for two weeks and uh, I loved every minute of it so when he finally did leave we brought extra business extra shtick um, into the show and uh, I made it more mine than Bob's I didn't want 
you've got to walk in the same footsteps as the leading actor who has just left because if you don't, then you get into someone else's spotlight. You get into someone else's moment. And you shouldn't. You should stay out. Let them have their, their moment of glory. Let them have that spotlight which they've earned. And so what I did above those footsteps was my own invention, and they allowed me to do it. This was a, a collection of business shtick that I'd, I'd collected over the last 30 or 40 years from watching people in Music Hall, and I incorporated it all into this one show, and it, it was such a, a joy to bring it back to life, to be able to bring it back to life. Can you almost name the shticks? Like you can almost say, oh, that's Betty from I Remember This Thing. Right. We actually oh, yeah. know. Isn't that fun? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. I can remember who I, can remember for who I stole it from. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever improve it? Did you steal and improve? Oh, you have to. You have to do it. <laughs> Don't just copy. You know? Try to do it better, yes. Well, you don't want to let on that you're actually stealing. You have to give your own personal no, twist, but I seriously, suppose. in those days, in those days, British comedy is different than American. The British comedy is, did you hear the one about the man who da-da-da-da-da-da? I, I give you an example, an old musical joke. I was speaking to a friend of mine last night, and he said he and his wife went to a wonderful restaurant, fantastic food, wonderful wine. And I said, what was it called? He said it was called... It was called Oh, it was called, it was, oh God, my memory, my memory, um, a flower, a flower with a stalk with thorns. I said, Rose. He said, that's it. Rose, what was the name of that <laughs> restaurant we went to? <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's an old joke um, that was from musical. Those are the sort of things that uh, you can bring up to date, I suppose. Well, and frankly, they're still funny. At least that one was. But they so. are funny, aren't they? <laughs> they are yeah. funny. And they're not crude. They're the, well, there's the turn. There's them. the turn. The yeah. unexpectedness of it, you know? Well, it's the same as when you walk. If you walk on the stage and you know the scene says he trips over, um, you can't do it just as you step onto that stage. You can't do it. It's too early. You can't leave it too late because that suspicious thing, you're walking across, you get too far. So you have to judge it, and eventually the top comics who would do that would always, it doesn't matter what size stage, they would, they would fall within two or three inches of where everybody else had done it. Because it's the timing. Right. It had been perfected. It can't be longer. It, it had can't been be perfected by other That's people, right. and they were not going to take right. any chances. Mm. And they've learned, and you've learned, that it's within... That sweet spot. Oh, it's a sweet spot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it's also phenomenal that after this, uh, you know, you've been you've been acting, performing, you know, singing uh, for so many years, and then along comes uh, a, a little book called Harry Potter, um, and now you are, for many people, the voice of not just you know in Harry Potter, but the entire series of books. When that. Uh, how did that opportunity come to you? I mean, were audiobooks even on your uh, radar at the time? No, I'd never, I'd never recorded an audiobook in my life. I had no idea how to do it. Someone said, uh, "There's a, a new book come out called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and they need an English voice for the audio." And uh, they said, "Well, Jim Dale's um, English, and he's off up off Broadway at the moment in a, a four-hander play called Travels with My Aunt." And uh, three of them do the talking. One of them doesn't talk at all. But the three of them, they do 33 characters between them. And they said, oh, that's great. Let's hire Jim Dale. So they interviewed me. I said, fine. Signed the contract. And then somebody said, so how many characters did you do? 
And I said, just the aunt and the nephew. Excuse me? <laughs> what, what about, about the, the other 30? <laughs> I said, well, the, the other two guys did 31 between them. Whoops. <laughs> so I now had to prove it. But nobody told me that there should be voices to the characters. I just thought it might be an idea to mm. give voices to each and every character, a different voice. I didn't know I could do voices until then, but uh, each book, <laughs> she created more and more voices. The first book, it was 33 voices. By the time book seven was there, it was 147. And by then you were created. committed to creating voices for each of these characters. Absolutely, so. and remembering which character from book two, sp the way they spoke, right. when it came to that character speaking again in book seven. So it, it was quite a tricky operation with spreadsheets throughout my apartment, <laughs> a tapes galore as to what the voices were, and uh, keeping a record of, of all those voices. There were over, altogether over 200 different types of voice. No, obviously not all so different. You, know, mm -hmm. you can't, nobody could possibly do that. But for instance, the three boys who were part of the same family, you had to give them different voices, but they all had the same accent. So how do you do it? One hesitantly spoke the words. The other one was more flamboyant. So that's the way you could distinguish one very sound, you know, one accent, very similar accent from another, from the way the character actually spoke. One of the things that I think is the strength of the performances is really how you pull us in. Let's, let's take a listen. I've never heard this, by the way. This week, he roared across the table. If you can't control that owl, it'll have to go. Harry tried yet again to explain She's bored, he said. She's used to flying around outside. If I could just let her out at night... Do I look stupid? snarled Uncle Vernon, a bit of fried egg dangling from his bushy moustache. I know what'll happen if that owl's let out. He exchanged dark looks with his wife, Petunia. Harry tried to argue back, but his words were drowned by a long, loud belch from the Dursley's son, Dudley. I want more bacon! It's so interesting. I mean, and you... You, you don't seem the, to be delighting in hearing I've that. never heard them. <laughs> you never have? Why? I've, ne I've, ne I've never listened to them. I, the first day that we rehearsed, recorded this, after about an hour of recording, that that tape was sent to be edited, and they came back half an hour later, and they said, you made a mistake. Could you re-record re it? I said, yes, may I listen to it? And they played it back, and I said, oh, God... Can I do the whole book again, please? They said, no, no, it's too late. You're and I said, well, I'm not going to listen to this ever. And I've never heard myself uh, reading Harry Potter. And I mm. don't want to. I don't want to. You're I, in the moment when you do it. Yes, I, I don't want to listen to it. Um, no, <laughs> let others listen to it. Because uh, I'm too critical. I, I, I know I could do it better. Because when you're in film or television, take 20, take 30, take 40 until you get it right. This is take one. <laughs> wow. Every time, take yeah. one. It's like your live performances here. It's, you can't change it. So I don't want to listen to it because I know that I could have done better with a lot of rehearsal, but there was no time. Yeah. Mm. You did each book, you said, in two weeks. About two sort weeks. Of, sort of, yes. Don't forget, uh, the first two or three books were already out when, we, when I started to record. Later on, we had a deadline. We knew the next book would be out in eight weeks. And between now and eight weeks, we had to not only 
record the book. We, we had to edit the book. We had to package the book. We had to find out how many tapes there were, how many CDs were going to be there before the designers could design the packaging of it. And then it had the distribution to take. And all of this had to happen so that the audio books were on the, on the shelf that same day that the book came out. All the kids would have bought the book because they wanted to know what happened. So it was pretty hectic those weeks. And top secret too, I imagine. And top secret, mm. yes. I wasn't allowed to say that I, I knew how it ended. <laughs> In fact, that was a funny, funny moment was the last book, the last book, book seven, and there was a big, and they gave me the book seven. I'd already recorded it, so I, I knew what it was all about. And I said to all the kids in the big store I said I'd like to read you the last paragraph and they all screamed out no, no, we don't want to know and I said yes and then I said all, <clears throat> all, the, all the ghosts of Gryffindor walked into the big, big and the kids would say no don't, don't tell us I said all the ghosts went into the big high room and all started singing if they could see me now that, that. So <laughs> they had no idea what show that was from. <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> Very funny. And were there any characters that you actually, I mean, a hundred and something characters, 200, I think you said. Were there any that you really enjoyed doing that oh, really yes. brought out the Yes, well, the, the you know, most of the voices were real. They're, they're people I've heard. There mm. were two in, in particular, Dobby. Dobby, the, the little house elf. That, that sweet little voice I heard when I went into a department store that was pretty crowded one Christmas and the, the elevator was going up and it was the doors opened, I backed into it and the doors closed and in the silence going up I heard a little voice behind me say, excuse me sir, can you take your bum out of my face <laughs> and I sort of looked around and there's this little mini person standing there, you know, I, I I, I knew I could. I was feeling something. It was his nose. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, um, well, he was but, a very well-mannered young boy too. Well, he was. <laughs> you could have put I said, it much I, more blunt. I said, I, I, I'm sorry. I do apologise. And he said, That's all right, sir. They all do it. <laughs> At least you're facing away from me. <laughs> no. I, I thought, Oh, I love that voice. And so he became Dobby. That's but, amazing, all those years later. No, but there, there was Professor McGonagall, yeah, Maggie Smith's role, mm -hmm. you know. Yes. Well, that was an actual aunt of mine who lived in Edinburgh, and that was her voice. She used to phone me from England saying, Jimmy, Dad, I'm coming over to America to spend a few days, and I know you like taking me to the very best restaurants, so I won't bring any money with me. Is that all right, dear? <laughs> <laughs> and that was her voice so I thought McGonagall yes this, this professor mm. so they all came from somewhere they, there's, mm -hmm. they've all got a lovely history to them yes well it's a pity you can't listen to them <laughs> since apparently <laughs> you won't because they are very enjoyable to hear um, well thank you so much for joining us uh, you know we've covered pretty much all the aspects of your career when you look back I mean uh, you know seeing me and my girl at that young age, did you ever imagine that you would have the kind of career that you did? Are there things that you wish you'd done that you didn't do? Or are you fairly satisfied with the w wide range of stuff you've done? I, I can say I'm, I'm satisfied with it, mainly because I've never been in, interested in becoming what they call a star. 
um, my interest was comedy, my interest was entertaining, my interest was making people laugh from the very early days. And wherever that led me, I, I went along like a, you know, a sheep. I just followed, followed that branch of show business up that, and I've explored it. And if I liked it, I'd stay up there for a few months and come back and go up another one and explore that. So looking back on it, um, I, if you, you know something, in England I made 28 films over the years, the old character on films mm -hmm. which were, were very famous over there but since coming to America in the last 35 years I've, I've not made one film oh yes one film um, The Hunchback um, but there's a, mainly because in America in England I should say London you can actually film your films in London television in London mm -hmm. theater in London over here it's theater New York television LA films LA yeah. You've got to make a choice as an actor. Where do you live? And I decided it. I didn't want that uh, process of being in films and television and being recognized. Here's a big thing. Um, as a carry-on actor in England, the carry-ons, by the way, are very, very popular. As popular as I Love Lucy and all that. Yes. They made 33 films over the last 40 years. Major films for the cinemas that are now being shown on television two or three times a week in England. So everybody who was a part of the Carry On films, the um, the team, there were seven of us, we've all become very well known. We've been in your living room three times a week for 40 years, so you do know us. And with the, the difficulty being that when I go back to England, I get in the cab and he says, where to, Jim? What straight away? Um, <laughs> so I, I, and I don't like being recognized in the street. I never have enjoyed that and I knew that would happen if you become a big star in television or films I don't want it I've spent my entire 37 years over here in New York City very happy either on Broadway off Broadway or even off 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 Broadway I'm not bothered about the size of the audience I'm bothered about the material I'm bothered about the director I'm bothered about the, the wonderful talented cast that you can work with and things like that creating something right. from literally nothing well mm. and, get, and getting those laughs that, and that drove you getting for the so laughs. many years absolutely if there's anything better than laughter let me know that yes. famous <laughs> expression yeah. I haven't discovered it yet either yes. <laughs> well you've certainly made us laugh here today okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. It's, it's really been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you, too. Before we let you go, we've got one more story. It's a bonus track we like to call the B-side, Stories from the Road. In this case, from backstage. On Broadway, backstage stories can be as wonderful as the shows themselves. Here's a good one from Jim Dale, and a lesson that maybe things aren't always what they seem. It happened while he was performing the title role of Scapino at the Young Vic Theatre in London. So one night, I, I usually looked out through the curtain to see where people were sitting because at one point in the play, I would run from the stage and land, jump the gap and land on the back of the front row of seats. And, and this particular night, I looked out to see where I... I would run because people had a tendency to put their coats on the back of seats and I planned where my route would go into the middle of the auditorium and I noticed that on the fourth row back there was a big fat man sprawled back in his seat, big smile on his face, fast asleep. And I thought, how can he possibly be asleep? This is a funny, nobody sleeps when I'm on. So when the when the... The race started, two guys chasing me with a three-foot-long red Italian salami sausage. I grabbed 
this sausage. And you could see the guy saying, what the hell is he doing? And I ran backwards and forwards and to the back of the stage. Then I ran to the front, leaped off the stage onto the back of the front row, this time to step sideways to my right onto the second row, third to the third row. There's the fourth row. There's the guy leaning there. I swung the salami back. Bang! Got him in the back of the neck. Pow! Knocked him into the, into the aisle. The audience loved it. Laughing their heads off. I ran onto the backs of the seats into the center of the auditorium, did the rest of the scene. Then I ran backstage, completely out of breath, and there was a livid stage manager. He said, what? Why did you hit that man? I said, what are you talking about? Of course, of course I hit him. There he was, fast asleep, big smile on his face. He said, yes, Jim, he was enjoying it. He's blind. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. Um, oh, I've got to apologize. I really do. Where is he now? He said, we don't know. He staggered to his feet. He's gone up the aisle. He's gone. We just found his white stick. I said, oh, good. He said, but it doesn't have his name on it. Well, these things happen. <laughs> In a lifetime of uh, physical comedy, you're going to have a mishap or two. <laughs> well, you never know. That's the whole funny thing of it. That's the but turn. The turn was on you. Yeah. I was expecting to hear, it was Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.